Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. You can find Luke 24 on page 831 in our Pew Bible. So turn there, the bottom right-hand corner, page 831. We are, we are on the home stretch of the Gospel of Luke. We've got this text today and then two more. Two more passages and then we're going to be all done. It's been a long time. Long time coming, and we've covered a lot of a lot of ground. So, started in Luke one, uh, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Mary's uh, cousin Elizabeth, and kind of the birth of John the Baptist. Luke two, Jesus's birth and childhood being presented at the temple. Um, you know, twelve-year-old Jesus uh, being found at the temple. These kinds of things. Luke three and four, Jesus prepares for ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He undergoes the temptation in the, in the wilderness. Luke chapters 4 through 9 is Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee, the northern region of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. He's preaching, teaching. This is where he calls his disciples, preaching, teaching, healing, doing, doing miracles, these kinds of things. In Luke 9, uh, Jesus and his disciples set off on a trip from Galilee in northern Israel to Jerusalem in southern Israel, and that comprises the next 10 chapters of the book. So Luke 9 to 19 is the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, as, he's, as they're going, you know, he's doing more uh, miracles, more teaching ministry, uh, more, you know, helping people, these kinds of things. Luke 19, uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. It's the triumphal procession. It's Palm Sunday. So he kind of comes in, and everyone is celebrating his uh, arrival Jesus promptly, after he celebrated upon arriving, uh, flips over all of the, the tables in the, the temple courts. So, kind of a, a weird kind of uh, some, some a weird turn of events there. He weeps over the the coming judgment uh, that the Jerusalem is going to experience. Uh, Luke chapter twenty. Uh, he spends all week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday teaching in the temple courts. And as he's doing so, the, the religious leaders are growing impatient with him. They are frustrated, uh, you know, at his teaching. They want him gone. Uh, Luke 22, uh, the plot to, be, to kill Jesus starts to heat up. The religious leaders enlist jo- Judas, one of his disciples, uh, to, to betray him. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his uh, disciples. He goes out to the Mount of Olives to pray where he's interrupted and arrested and kind of hauled off in the middle of the night. Luke 23 is Jesus' trial and crucifixion. So he goes to, to, you know, first he has a trial in front of the religious leaders, then Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate, and he's sentenced to die, and he's beaten and tortured and crucified and buried in a grave. Luke 24 is where we arrived last week. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus. The women uh, go to the tomb early Sunday morning. They find that it's empty. Uh, they're met by two angels who tell them that Jesus is risen. They run back and tell the disciples who are starting to try and process and starting to try to assign meaning to this glorious news. That's where we left off at verse 12. And so today we're going to look at the next 20 plus verses and look at the road to Emmaus, the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus that two of the disciples are taking when they actually encounter the risen Christ and experience uh, an interaction with him. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in and just consider, consider the text this morning. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these, th- these last days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts or did not our hearts burn within us at, while we talked, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And as they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and meet us here this morning during these next few minutes. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would um, plant your truth deep in us. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you so that we we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. These two followers of Jesus are walking to a nearby village. It's about seven miles away. Got quite a hike in front of them. They're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. They're talking about the, the empty tomb. They're trying to process together what is uh, going, going on. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So the resurrected Christ walks up to these two disciples, right? And they, they don't see who he is. They don't, they're not able to understand or recognize who he is, which is a fairly common phenomenon in the Gospels when we see people interacting with the resurrected Christ. See it in Matthew 28. We see it in John 21. In John 20, uh, Mary Magdalene thinks that Jesus is the gardener. So she's not able to, to recognize him. But Luke 24 is the only passage that specifies that their eyes were actually kept from recognizing him. That there was something that was keeping them from being able to recognize who Jesus... It was almost as if there was a, a veil over their, over their eyes. Which is an apt analogy for the human heart in its natural state. right? Be, being unable to recognize the glory of the risen Christ, right? You can, you, you know, that's why you can hear the gospel. You can be around people who believe the gospel. You can even give intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. But the reality is in our natural state, apart from the intervention of God and his grace, the eyes of our hearts are kept from recognizing the glory of Jesus. We don't want to believe that we need a savior we don't want to acknowledge that jesus is that savior and our only hope of doing so is for jesus to intercede for the holy spirit to to intervene and to to give us the grace that's needed to to see and savor and trust uh in in christ so their eyes are kept from recognizing jesus and he said to them what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you as you walk together He's drawing them out. He's asking them questions. He's trying to get them to, to you know, come face to face with what's swirling around, lurking around in their hearts. And they stood still looking sad. So that's the silent treatment, right? That's the, you know, no response. And then after a moment, right, one of them named Cleopas says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these past days, right? Like, translation, you know, have you been living under a rock? You know, or something like this is all everyone is talking about. How can you not know what has been happening? And then Jesus said, what things? Jesus knows what things they're talking about. Jesus knows what has happened in Jerusalem these past few days. Jesus is the person to whom those things happened. He's not unaware He's just drawing them out. He's just, uh, just asking them, you know, tr- trying to help them come to, come to grips. He's, tr- he's trying, to, trying to bring about a teachable moment for them. So he says, what things? And then the, the two disciples, have you ever heard the term mansplaining? Where like a male explains something to a female that she already knows because he presumes that she couldn't possibly know that thing. This is, this is that, but way worse. So, they, so they're about to explain to Jesus about Jesus and about what Jesus just went through in the previous uh, couple of, of days. So they, so they say to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man, he was, he was a prophet who was mighty in deed and mighty in word. Right, one of the, one of the things that, that people often 
said about Jesus when they encountered him and his teaching and his miracles. They say, man, this guy is, is uh, he speaks with an authority and with a power that no one else does. Everyone else appeals to some sort of external authority, right? The, the teacher, the rabbi that taught me this, but Jesus is the one who teaches with an authority that is his in and of He Something is different, something is unique. He has authority and power in and of himself. He preached boldly. He acted boldly. And so he was, he was mighty and powerful both in what he said and in what he did, in deed and word. And this is important. This is kind of an important tension that, that Luke bring, brings out, that Jesus emphasized both uh, deed ministry and word ministry. Because it's very easy to fall into the trap of prioritizing one over the other, uh, often at the expense of, and then, and then ultimately failing to, failing to emphasize either. Right, there, there are Christians who emphasize word ministry, evangelism, preaching. The most important thing that you could ever do is, is to share the gospel with someone, teach them about Jesus. What, what, what would the value be in meeting someone's physical needs if you leave their spiritual needs unmet, right, in the, in the grand scheme of things? What good is it to give someone a glass of water or to give a hungry person a meal if you neglect to share the gospel with them, right? Ultimately, you're not helping them, you're, you're hurting them, right? And they'll, they'll say, if you zoom out, and, and not that this is wrong, but you just have to be careful with the image. If you zoom out and look at all of eternity, right, uh, why would you want to meet some minor, temporal, temporary need that they have right now in this world, in this planet, in this life, and, and neglect the eternal matters, the weightier matters that are going to have relevance for the next billions and trillions of years in eternity, right? So some people say that. They emphasize word ministry to the point that they neglect deed ministry, which is problematic because, you know, if a person is in, is, is in desperate need, if a person is, is suffering, if a person is homeless, if a person is starving to death, they might not be too receptive to having someone help them with their theology, especially if that person that's trying to help them with their theology has more than they need and is unwilling to share with them and, and care for them and meet their, their needs. And so the idea that, so word ministry is absolutely important. Jesus was mighty in ministry of word, but, it, but deed ministry is important as well. Some Christians say deed ministry is more important than word ministry. So they're all, you know, all about alleviating poverty or social justice, advocacy, soup kitchens, after school programs, but they might focus so much on those things that they neglect the ministry of the word. So they'll build houses, build wells, feed people, but they'll, they'll never actually get around to helping people find the eternal refuge that their souls need from the, the wrath of God. And so either one of those extremes, right, uh, exclusively emphasizing deed ministry to the, and neglecting the word ministry, or exclusively min, uh, emphasizing word ministry and neglecting deed ministry, either one is problematic, and Jesus walked that line perfectly, emphasizing both word and deed without neglecting either word or deed. For someone who emphasizes 
word ministry and neglects deed ministry, Jesus would point them to James chapter 2 and say, if someone is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you go to them and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? The implied answer is it's not good. It's, it's of no value, right? Ministry in word only but not in deed is of no value. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, it might do more harm than good. But for those who emphasize deed ministry and neglect the word ministry, Jesus would take them to, well, his own words in Mark chapter 8, where he says, what is it, what is it profit for a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? The implied answer is, Nothing. That's no profit. That's a net loss. So doing ministry indeed only and neglecting ministry of the word is also doing more harm than good. Jesus was mighty indeed and in word. And he was mighty before God and all the people. So here's another tension that Luke points out. He's mighty indeed and in word. He's mighty before God and he's mighty before people, both together, not neglecting either one. The, the vertical aspect of his relationship with God and the horizontal relation, aspect of his relationship with other people. He was deeply concerned about both of them. Some people are exclusively concerned with the vertical and they neglect the horizontal, so they might be deeply spiritual, right? Think like a, a monk or someone who withdraws to a monastery, they take a vow of silence, they spend all day in solitude, praying, cultivating their ver vertical relationship with God, but they never interact with others, they never encourage anyone else, they never help anyone else to enjoy the same vertical relationship that they are cultivating in their own heart, they never meet anyone's needs, rejoice with anyone, mourn with anyone, exhort anyone, teach anyone, it's just me, my relationship with God, that's all that matters, that's, that's not who Jesus was. So he emphasized the vertical relationship with God without neglecting the horizontal relationship with God. And there are some, some who emphasize and prioritize the horizontal relationship with other people, but neglect their own vertical relationship. They neglect their private life, right? So they're in public. They appear very uh, religious and spiritual and holy and well-adjusted and well-put-together, but they're more concerned about appearing as if they pray than praying. They're more concerned with appearing as if they read their Bible than reading their Bible. They're more concerned with appearing as if they're humble than actually being humble. So they're careful and meticulous about curating and managing how they come across to everyone else and how their relationships with everyone else have been smoothed over and glossed over well and they neglect their heart and they neglect their own relationship with God. They neglect their, their soul. Jesus was, Jesus was concerned with and Jesus emphasized both his vertical relationship with his father and his horizontal relationships with other people. He obeyed the greatest commandment, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's vertical. And he obeyed the second most important commandment, which is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's horizontal. 
So he's mighty in word and mighty in deed. He's mighty before God and he's mighty before people. That's how the people that knew Jesus described him. That's the reputation that preceded him. That's who Jesus was in verse 19. And here's what happened to him in verses 20 and following. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. The religious leaders crucified Jesus. uh, John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, devotes an entire chapter to the question, who killed Jesus? His point is, I mean, it's 20, 30 pages, whatever. His point is, it's not as simple, it's not as simple of a question as you might think at its surface, and it doesn't, its answer is not as simple as maybe you think it, it is. And so one of the answers that's not wrong is exactly what we see here in verse 20. In fact, he quotes this verse to say that, the, that who killed Jesus, it's right and true to say that the religious leaders killed Jesus, right? They're, they're the ones who set the whole thing in motion. It was there conspiring together. It was, the, it was their establishment that Jesus was threatening to upset. They were the ones who brought the case. Their pride, their envy, their greed was the driving force. And then he goes on to kind of uh, look at, you know, St- John Stott goes on to look at several other people that could rightly be said as they were the ones who killed Jesus, Pontius Pilate, and the, the Roman uh, soldiers, right? The Roman soldiers were the ones who carried out the task of crucifying Jesus, Pilate was the one who had multiple opportunities to exonerate Jesus, multiple opportunities to say, this is not right, this is unjust, we're not going to do this. Jesus is innocent. It's very clear that Pilate thought Jesus was innocent, and it's also very clear that Pilate didn't care that Jesus was innocent. Pilate cared more about his reputation and his, um, you know, his approval numbers, as it were. Which is why many of the creeds in the early church that were established shortly after the death of Christ say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So who killed Jesus? The religious leaders, absolutely. The Roman soldiers, absolutely. Pontius Pilate, absolutely. Judas Iscariot, uh, absolutely. He's the one who betrayed Jesus and handed him over because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. John Stott goes on to say, okay, not only... The religious leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, Judas Iscariot, but uh, us, their sin and our sin could effectively um, you know, be said to have crucified Jesus. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, there's a great crowd of people from every nation. And Peter stands up. Here's all these people from all over the place. Presumably they weren't there at the crucifixion. And he says, God has made Jesus who you crucified both Lord and Christ. Peter is looking at all of these people. None of them even speak his language. None of them have even seen him before, have even been within the vicinity. And he says, you crucified Jesus. You don't have to be physically present at the cross to share in the culpability of the death of Jesus. Jesus was not just crucified because of the sins of the people who were there physically present on that day. Jesus was crucified because of the sins of humanity. Your sin and my sin. The punishment that Jesus was enduring on the cross was punishment that was meant not just for the Roman soldiers, not just for Pontius, but it was punishment meant for me and punishment meant for you. And doesn't even stop there. Stott continues on to say, you could rightly say that Jesus was killed by 
the religious leaders, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, Judas Iscariot, their sin and our sin. And you could also rightly say that Jesus wasn't killed by anyone. Jesus laid, no one killed Jesus as if it was like a thing that was done to him that he couldn't do anything about. And he was the, the, you know, the unwilling, passive recipient of this being killed. No, instead, Jesus willingly laid his life down as a sacrifice. In John 10, he says, no one can take my life from me. No one can kill me. I am the one who lays my life down on my own accord. And I alone have the authority to lay it down. And I alone have the authority to take it up again. So who killed Jesus? It's not a simple question. I mean, they're right. These disciples are right. The religious leaders killed Jesus, as did Pilate and the soldiers and Herod and um, Judas Iscariot and their sin and ours. And in another sense, no one killed Jesus because he willingly gave his life away. He laid it down for us. Jesus of Nazareth, prophet, mighty in word and deed, Now the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But verse 21, but we we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is very telling. These disciples are telling Jesus, someone that they don't know to be Jesus, but they're telling him, our, our hope prior to Good Friday was that Jesus was the Messiah. It's that Jesus was going to save us. It was that Jesus is going to redeem Israel. His people. We had high hopes, but now those hopes have been dashed. We thought that he was going to rescue us. We thought that he was going to establish a new kingdom of justice and righteousness and safety and prosperity, you know, similar to that of of, uh, David in the Old Testament. That's what we thought, and then he died, and now we don't think that anymore. Now our hopes are dashed and shot. I mean, how can Jesus save us if he's dead? How can Jesus redeem us if he's dead? We had hoped. And yet, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of them went to the tomb, and they found that just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So we'd hoped Jesus was going to save us, and then he was killed, and we're kind of experiencing this, like, brutal backlash of, of the highest of, you know, whiplash, this, this roller coaster, the highest of highs. Jesus enters Jerusalem. We're prepared to take our nation back from the, the Roman oppressors. And then the lowest of lows, Jesus, the man we've placed our hopes in, was killed on a cross, the most shameful, terrible death a person could ever have. And now we don't want to get our hopes up. We don't, like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. We don't want to get our hopes up about Jesus having been resurrected like our hopes were up uh, on, on Palm Sunday, so we're a little guarded. Verse 25, then he says, You foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? saying come on guys like what why are you still 
being so, haven't I given you enough evidence? Haven't I prepared you enough? I told you that I was going to be crucified, Luke 9, Luke 17. I told you that I was going to be raised from the dead, Luke 9, Luke 18. I couldn't have set the table any more clearly than I did. I also made it clear over the course of my teaching that, that you, you can't bypass suffering on your way to glory, right? It's necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into glory. That's the, that's the necessary steps. That's the necessary order that things transpire, suffering and then glory. I made that very clear, right? John 12, unless a, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit, suffering and then glory. Anyone who loses their life or anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, so in order to experience the glory of eternal life, you have to walk through the suffering of losing your life, giving your life away. Suffering precedes glory. You can't get to the latter without going through the former. Crucifixion shouldn't be a big, a big shock because suffering is a necessary stop on the way to glory. And likewise, the resurrection shouldn't be a big shock to you because God is faithful to bring his people through suffering to glory on the other end of it. Suffering, suffering and glory go hand in hand like that. And, and understanding that is a key piece of living an emotionally healthy, balanced Christian life. Suffering and glory. Some people are all glory, no suffering, right? So they're, they're, they're all about the glory of God, but they have no category whatsoever for the, the, the thought that, they might, that God might be calling them to suffer. So they say things like, God's will is for his children to prosper. God wants his children to be happy and healthy and wealthy. God doesn't want you to get sick. God, God doesn't want you to be poor. If you have enough faith, if you have a positive attitude then you'll, you'll, you know, God will bless you. God will give you everything you've ever wanted. And what they're really saying is, I expect glory. I feel entitled to glory right here, right now. And I have no category for suffering. Suffering only happens to people who don't have enough faith. And that is dangerous and wrong. Some people are all suffering, no glory. So the flip side, right? They experience suffering. It's almost as if they've come to expect suffering in their life. They're really good at complaining about suffering. They draw attention to their suffering. They wallow in self-pity. They invite others to, to pity them. Almost as if they've forgotten that God is faithful and able to bring people through suffering into glory. Experience loss, hardship, conflict, sickness, death, desires, and longings that go unfulfilled. But rather than trusting God to help them persevere through it, they fall into despair or depression. I knew this would happen. This always happens. God hates me. There's no way that anything good could ever come out of this. Complaining. They suffer. 
and they're all too quick to draw attention to their suffering, but they have no category for the reality that God might be sovereignly using that suffering to bring them through it to glory on the other side of it. So Jesus says it was God's will for him to suffer and then enter into glory. Not glory without suffering and not suffering without glory, right? Jesus recognizes that if he's going to enjoy the glory of God, he has to persevere through suffering first. Jesus recognizes that even when he is suffering, God is faithful to bring him through it to glory on the other side of it. And if we want to follow in the footsteps of Christ, we would do well to do those two things as well. Expect suffering on our way to glory and expect glory on the other side of the suffering that we are walking through. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As they're walking, this is seven miles, so they've got hours, presumably, to walk with Jesus, and they just kind of have a theological discussion with him, where Jesus points out and interprets and applies various passages and texts from the Old Testament, and it says that he interprets them, uh, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is pointing out to them all of the places in the Old Testament where they uh, can see very clearly and very plainly the person and work of Jesus being anticipated. He's pointing it out to them, and he's interpreting it for them. So he probably showed them, probably showed them in Genesis chapter 3, how God promised that there would be a descendant of Eve who would be born of a mother, who would do battle with Satan, who would be bruised by Satan, but would overcome Satan and save his people and reverse the curse and reverse the effects of sin. He probably pointed that out to them. He probably pointed out the flood in Noah and showed them how God's judgment and wrath rained down on the world and destroyed everyone and everything except those people who were hidden in the, the refuge, the, the wooden ark of refuge that God made for them. And he probably showed them how God's wrath falls on everyone who does not hide in the, the cross of Christ. Taking them to Genesis 12 and show them how Abraham obeyed God and left his home and ventured into the unknown so that God would bless him and bless the world through him and form a people from him, just like Jesus did when he left his throne in heaven to come here. Genesis 37 and following Joseph, the, the beloved son of the father, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into the ground, left for dead, but he's not dead, he's exalted, he's living among the Gentiles, and now he is, uh, you know, giving the bread of life for everyone to, to live on in times of, of famine. Could have taken them to Exodus and show them how God delivered his people from slavery to Egypt, just like Jesus delivers his people from slavery to sin. And how he did it specifically through the sacrifice of an innocent lamb, Right? So if anyone hides in their home and is covered by the blood of the Lamb, then the, the, the destroyer, the wrath of God, would pass over their home. Could have showed them Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, how sin is transferred from the people to the Lamb, and then the Lamb is slaughtered, and the wrath of God is satisfied, and the people can experience forgiveness through the shedding of blood 
of the Lamb. He could have taken them to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, everyone's getting sick and dying in the community of Israel. And God says, here's what you should do. Take, uh, fashion a snake out of bronze, attach it to a pole, and hold it up really high in the air. And everyone's sick and dying, and everyone who looks to that snake attached to that pole will be healed and will have their life restored. And in John 3, Jesus says, just like that snake was lifted up and people who looked to it were saved, so the Son of Man will be nailed to a cross and lifted up, and everyone who looks to him will be saved. Deuteronomy 18, there will be a prophet like Moses who will proclaim the word of God to the people of God. Joshua, right? Jesus could have showed them how he was the true and better Joshua who leads the people of God into the promised land to experience the true Sabbath rest of God. He could have taken them to Ruth and showed them how Boaz was a redeemer who bought Ruth out of poverty and suffering and made a covenant with her so that she could experience his joy and blessing just like Jesus does with his bride, the church. Could have shown him first and second Samuel how Jesus is the greater David, the shepherd king who does battle with the, the Goliath-like enemies of God's people and defeats them and then, and then imputes his victory to them so that they can enjoy the blessings of his victory as if they were the ones who accomplished it instead of him. He could have gone to the book of Job and shown how he's the true and better Job who suffered not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. And though he was misunderstood by his friends, God raised him up so that he could intercede for those who had formerly opposed him. He could have taken him to the Psalms. Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected would become the cornerstone on whom God would build his church. Psalm 22, the innocent one being persecuted, pierced, and killed by his enemies. Psalm 16, he's resurrected from the dead to enjoy eternal life. Psalm 110, he's exalted to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign forever. Could have showed him Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who carries our sorrows. He was stricken and smitten and afflicted by God and pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But through his suffering, he brought us peace and healing. We've shown him Jeremiah or Lamentations, the, the weeping prophet who entered into the sorrow and lamented over the sins that had exiled his people from God as a way to prove God's love and faithfulness to them. The book of Daniel, right? The Son of Man coming on the clouds, reigning over all people for all of eternity with glory and power. The book of Hosea. He could have shown how he is the faithful husband who was betrayed by the adulterous bride, yet still loved and pursued her to have her as his own. The book of Joel, how, how the promised day of the Lord's judgment fell upon Christ on the cross, and that at his ascension, we, Jesus would send the promised Holy Spirit to all who would repent. The book of Jonah. Jonah was thrown into the storm, and as he does, the waves grow calm. And he spends three days in the belly of a whale until he's puked up on the shore and goes and preaches to Nineveh. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath and it becomes calm. And he spends three days in the belly of the earth, in the grave, until he's risen in victory and then he proclaims the gospel to his people. Could have showed him in Micah how 
the promised ruler was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. He could have he could have shown them how the, the Old Testament offices of prophet and priest and king all kind of meet their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the prophet who proclaims the word of God to the people of God. He's the priest who draws near and comforts and atones for the sin of the people. He's the king who leads them into peace and security. He could have explained how the Old Testament sacrificial system was about Jesus Sin transferred to a substitute who's then slaughtered so that the people can be saved. He could have explained how the temple was about Jesus, the place where God's presence dwells here on earth with his people. Friends, the Bible is about Jesus. Start to finish, cover to cover, it's about his glorious person his pre-existence, his incarnation, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension into power and glory, his sovereign rule and reign, and then his return to defeat his enemies and save his people forever. The Bible is about Jesus. And our task as the people of God is to read, is to open our Bibles and read our Bibles to see Jesus. Not, not for entertainment, not for information, not, not to get a list of rules, things to do and not do. Our task is to read the Bible and see Jesus, to see this, this broad, grand, sweeping story of God and Christ come to save sinners. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, sin, Christ, faith. That's how Jesus read his Bible. And that's how God is calling us to read our Bibles. Verse 28. They drew near to the village where they were going. Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they said, stay with us because it's almost, it's getting late. So he stayed with them. When he was at the table, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. That's the exact same language that we see Luke use to describe Jesus' actions at the Last Supper. He took, four verbs. He took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them. Same thing that we see at the feeding of the 5,000. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And so there's something about, that's like a deja vu that sets in right there. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. So back in verse 16, we saw that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. Here in verse 31, their eyes are opened. If that was an apt analogy for the natural state of the human heart before the intervention of God, then, then our eyes being opened to recognize and see Jesus is an apt analogy for when we come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart and gives us new life and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we wreck, that's, that's why people will say, I've been in church my whole life. I've been around Christians my whole life. I've always been aware of and somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus, but it wasn't until now that I saw the, the glory of Jesus in a new way, in a different way, in a better way. Because we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, convict us of sin, draw us to faith, help us to trust in him. 
that we can be reconciled to him. Verse 32, they said to each other, did our, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he was opening to us the scriptures? I knew something was up. Something was weird about that. I didn't know who it was, but couldn't put my finger on it, but something was up. Something about his tone, something about how he taught the scriptures. He taught as a man who had authority. And they rose that same hour. So, so they just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, now, and it was getting late, so it's dark. They said, come in, it's dark, it's late now. And now they're going to get up and go back to Jerusalem. Seven more miles. So they're probably going to be walking way late into the night. But they're so excited. They, they've seen the risen Christ, right? They've experienced the glory of the resurrected Christ, and they can't contain it. They can't keep it to themselves. They have to gather with the people of God and celebrate it and, and encourage other believers with this good news and, and be encouraged and experience this good news in the context of other believers. So they presumably, they run, sprint the seven miles back to Jerusalem. When they get there, they find that Jesus has appeared to others as well, right? The, they find them all gathered together. They say, the Lord has risen to you. He's appeared to Simon. It's like, we didn't even get to say our thing. And now you're saying that you, one of you has, has met and seen uh, and experienced an appearance of Jesus. This is remarkable. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he's known to them in the breaking of bread. Like, us too. We saw Jesus too. He walked with us. He talked with us. He explained the scriptures to us. He broke bread. And the, the story is developing, Right? Right? That we, we've got an empty tomb. We've got multiple independent corroborating uh, examples of the, uh, the risen Christ appearing to someone. The scriptures are being opened and fulfilled. People's eyes are being opened to recognize Jesus. They're starting to gather together, proclaim the good news of the gospel to one another, encourage one another in the gospel, rejoicing together that Jesus is risen from the dead. This is all happening in the context of the, of the very first Easter Sunday. We're still Sunday evening at this point. And that's what we do to this day. We still, like these people here on this Sunday evening, we, we look to Jesus in faith. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to recognize him and see his glory. We walk with him. We listen to him. We read the scriptures and we see how Jesus is at the center of them, how Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And then we gather together. We celebrate together. We encourage one another. We rejoice together. We walk with Jesus together as a, as a family, as a covenant community. Christians have been doing this ever since the very first Easter Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's what we are doing today. Let's open our Bibles, see the glory of the resurrected Christ in them, and then let's gather and encourage and worship God together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for us to save us from our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. But we thank you that you didn't stay dead, that you were raised from the dead in victory to give us new life, eternal life in Christ. 
Lord Jesus, you are the hero. You're the, the hero of the Old Testament. You're the hero of our lives. We bow before you as our hero, as our king, as our God, and as our Savior. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.